Welcome to the Austin Forum Upload, the podcast of the Austin Forum on technology and society. Every episode, we upload for you the expertise, insights, and opinions of thought leaders, innovators, and creators on topics at the intersection of technology and society. We'll cover pervasive and emerging technologies that are influencing and impacting our business, education, governments, research, and culture. I'm Jay. I'm Jessica. And I'm John. And we're the co-producers of the Austin Forum Upload. Welcome to the Austin Forum Upload. I'm Jay Boisseau, the executive director and founder of the Austin Forum. And I'm very excited today for this episode. We're gonna talk about social media and society, how social media can influence broad societal climate, especially as it pertains to how we perceive politics and government, a very timely issue now. So today I've asked three friends to join me on this. Sherry Greenberg, a professor in the UT Austin LBJ School of Public Affairs. Talia Stroud, a professor at UT Austin in the Moody College of Communications. And Paul O'Brien, the CEO and founder of MediaTek Ventures. Thank you all for joining me on the show today. Can you give our listeners just a little bit of background about each of yourselves and your interest in social media and society? Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I'm Sherry Greenberg. I am a professor of practice at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm also a fellow of the Max Sherman Chair in State and Local Government, and I have a a long history of technology policy in both the uh, public sector and the private sector, the academic sector, as well as having been an elected official for 10 years in the uh, Texas House of Representatives from 1991 until 2001. It's a pleasure to be with you today, and I'm really excited to explore this topic. Thanks for joining us, Sherry. Talia, how about you go next? Thanks, Jay. A pleasure to be here. I'm Talia Stroud. I'm a professor in the Moody College of Communication, and I direct the Center for Media Engagement. And I am an academic and researcher. I got my start examining what the effects of partisan news were on uh, on democracy. And recently, I've been thinking more about what are the solutions? What is it that we could do to improve the media's role in a democracy? And so uh, the center has been working with newsrooms and social media companies to try to figure that out. Great. Thanks for joining us, Talia. And Paul, my old friend, why don't you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Good to hear your voices. One of the more exciting aspects of this this talk, honestly, coming out of the Austin Forum is that Austin, for your listeners, Austin is one of the places where we understand this stuff. It's really been fascinating to be here for the last 10 years. I I come from Silicon Valley, frankly, so I'm, I'm one of those those folks with some of those battle scars, I've, I've been involved with Yahoo directly. I got in some trouble when I worked at HP and, and Facebook emerged. And so, so I've got some of the early days perspective on, on how this stuff works. And, and Austin's just a fantastic place for this because there's so much media and technology talent here that we're building media tech ventures and love exploring what's going on in social media and the implications of this. So looking forward to our discussion. Well, I'm really glad that all three of you could join us and bring your combined perspective and backgrounds in government, in higher education, and in the private sector. And now is a great time to talk about this topic because in just the last week, we've seen multiple large-scale social media platforms like Facebook and YouTube and Twitter prevent the President of the United States from posting anymore due to the perceived influence in the insurrection last week. We have seen Amazon uh, web services uh, deplatform and stop hosting the uh, 
parlor or parlay, depending on whether you're French or <laughs> Texan, I guess, uh, not host that platform anymore. And the Apple and Google stores uh, stopped carrying the app. So we've seen some tremendous actions taking against some very high profile people and services. And this has not been government ordered. This has been at the discretion of these companies. And so that leads us to some really interesting questions about the role these social media platforms now play in society and what the appropriate policies and regulations, if any, should be considering their influence and importance. And I'm, I'm pleased to explore all that with you in this conversation. Before we jump in, I wanna tell all of our listeners, this will be a two-part podcast. Today, we will talk about the different platforms that are out there, the relative size and scope of them, the laws that govern and do not govern the usage of these platforms. And we'll begin to dive into some of the recent issues that we've seen. There's a lot to unpack here though. So we'll have a part two of this episode where we will really get into each of our experts' thoughts about what government can and maybe should do and shouldn't do, what the private sector, including these social media platforms and the hosting companies for them, can, should, and shouldn't do, and what you as our listeners need to think about and consider and be aware of and make sure you're informed about as you think about the next round of elections and the people that will set these policies, as well as what you're going to encourage in your own spheres of influence about how to use these platforms so with that said, I'd like to welcome all of you to this episode, part one, and I'd like to start the discussion with Paul. Paul, can you set the stage? What are the big social media platforms in the world? What kinds of content are they sharing and what are their geographical reaches and audiences? Yeah, really a wonderful way to start because it's easy for us in, in, in the United States or in any country, frankly, to to have a, a perception of the impact of these things based on our experience with them. The fact is most of these are, are substantial properties on the internet that, that are, are used by a, a great percentage of the entire world. At the very top uh, are, are companies that are obvious to you, I'm sure, Facebook, YouTube, and, and Twitter. YouTube, by the way, videos, uh, all, all eclipsing easily 2 billion, 3 billion people on those, those websites. I mean, imagine that there are 6 or 7 billion people in the world. Uh, right now, uh, half of the entire world is using is using Facebook, and and in in appreciating those, it's it's valuable to to recognize too that a lot of these companies are owned by somebody else, and and so YouTube is in fact a Google company. Google's got their hand in this social media game as well by way of how YouTube works, and we're, we think of YouTube as a video platform, but in the in the context of what social media means. People chat, people discuss, people share information, people publish content on YouTube. So it certainly fits in the same wheelhouse as the rest of these experiences. Down from there a little bit, we have things like, like what are called WhatsApp. WhatsApp is more of a chat experience or messaging experience. And then we've got one that most people aren't aware of in the United States called Wexen. And we're not aware of it because Wexen's out of China, our, our fifth largest social media platform. Uh, in the world is is out of China. It's owned by a company called Tencent, which is a name you might recognize. And it is it is amongst all of those at the top, the fastest growing. And that's rather important to appreciate because the rest of the world is coming online fast, which means that a lot of the adoption of social media is already existing in the US. 
we're going to see a lot more emergence of users and, and customers and businesses on these platforms in other countries, particularly China and, and India. And then Instagram, a uh, photo platform that, that you might be familiar with as such. Photo, uh, Instagram is considered the next at about 1.3 billion. And that, by the way, is owned by Facebook. So that gives us a couple with Facebook at the top. Just below that, and, and just a few more to maybe mention that are important, just below that is one called TikTok, which of course is very familiar to, to people who are younger and, and getting a lot of media attention lately. Uh, it, it's exploding on the scene because uh, it's, got that, it's got that enthusiasm. It's got a lot of adoption of, uh, from people elsewhere in the world. And so it's very quickly accelerating in the United States. It's owned by way of China, as well as the next largest. It's called QQ, also owned by Tencent. So that's three now up there at the top, along with a lot of what's been built in the United States by way of Silicon Valley. Then there are some smaller ones very quickly. Reddit should be known. Reddit's one where people can be pretty anonymous, frankly. And so as we think about privacy and what that means, there are considerations in that case. Snapchat is one that you might be familiar with. Folks, folks these days, younger folks tend to be using that as a communication platform. LinkedIn is absolutely a social media platform. A lot of people don't think of it that way because it's been used for jobs and recruiting and employment, but it is a social platform, a social network owned by Microsoft. And then one of my favorites, just to mention, because it is so, is called Quora, where there are a lot of questions and answers uh, uh, traded as posts. But the point being, whether it's photos or videos or questions or, or just posts in the way that we're familiar with them on Facebook or Twitter, social media means a lot of different things. It's essentially two-way communication. And anywhere that we can engage with the post, anywhere we can publish our own content, we kind of refer to that as social media. And so it's important to appreciate that not only is there a lot of stuff going on in the United States, thanks to uh, our, our innovation in the U.S. with regard to Silicon Valley and, and social media, but we're seeing other major countries come onto the scene very, very quickly. Uh, India is pretty substantial for Quora and Reddit. As those countries emerge and become much more active and participate in social media. That's going to change what we're going to experience in this regard even more than we've experienced it so far, by the way, the United States. Paul, thanks for that overview. So really there's, you know, a lot of social media platforms out there that take a lot of different forms and formats and specialize in different kinds of content and different durations of content. But there's at least a half dozen with more than a billion users in the world. There's a lot that are growing rapidly. And so these are huge numbers. This means lots of people are providing content and consuming content. And that leads to some interesting situations. And you've got that many people on a platform in a country or around the world. Talia, how about you inform the audience about what is the nature of the current debate around social media companies as it pertains to tech monopolies and their influence. Can you sort of give us the big picture of what people are concerned about and talking about? Well, there are so many different debates about social media going right now, and I'll give you an overview of four of them. Uh, the first is a really important question about whether major tech companies like Google or Facebook have some sort of monopoly power that they've used inappropriately. So are they so large that they're able to set prices? Are they negotiating behind the scenes to give each other special advantages? Uh, and that's, I think, a substantial question and the policy implications emerging from this are whether the tech platforms should be able to remain as these large uh, conglomerates or whether they need to be broken apart in some way. And there are different opinions on whether that should be the case or not. And there are also different opinions on how that would even be done if you were to embark upon something like breaking apart these major tech companies. 
So that's the first debate. The second debate is whether the tech companies have political biases. And here there have been accusations that the some of the major tech companies are biased against particular uh, political points of view. Uh, the argument that their algorithms preferentially uh, allow some content and not others. And of course, when you see decisions like removing major political figures from a platform, that's bound to raise the ire of some that believe that that is in fact a sign of political biases. Uh, the third is the concern that the content on social media has damaging democratic effects. And this includes the uh, transmission of lots of misinformation and making it possible for that to circulate quickly and widely. Uh, this is concerns about other content that have polarizing effects and concerns, frankly, about whether these media themselves have uh, implications for our well-being. Is it the case that we spend so much time and we're so addicted to these platforms that it can have negative effects on what we think about the world in which we live? And then the fourth and final one, uh, an interesting one, which is should the platforms have some sort of responsibility to make their data available? Uh, so researchers, for instance, don't have access to the data that many of these platforms accumulate, and they have lots of data on all of us. Think about all the things you do on social media. And these are used internally for social media companies, uh, oftentimes for the purpose of selling advertising. Uh, but it's not really accessible to the greater public. And so this is makes it challenging when you're developing public policy if you don't have the data to support uh, policies that you might want to make. And so I think that there is a really important uh, rationale here to be made that data should be more accessible. Of course, the platforms counter that they have legal and uh, 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 they have legal obligations and there are privacy protecting reasons that they should not share their data more broadly. And so uh, all of these, there are different perspectives on uh, what social media companies are doing and exactly what should be done as a consequence. So Talia, it, it, you listed several debates right there. Some of these have been longstanding concerns people have had about data collection and how they share that data and monetize it, um, the security of your data on that. There's certainly been long-standing uh, discussions about the size and scale of these companies and whether they are essentially monop monopolies and whether other companies can enter the space. But you mentioned a couple in there that are really uh, relevant for today's topic. And that's the, the debates around the role they play in politics and the political climate of the, of the country. And I really want to delve into that because we've heard a lot about, you know, does this violate free speech? Is this appropriate? Is, should there be legislation about X or Y or Z? And so in the interest of, of, of setting the, the foundation for this discussion, Sherry, can you tell us a little bit about what actually is free speech in the First Amendment? And what is Section 230 in the Communications Decency Act? Can you inform our listeners about what really are the current legal precedents and policies? What do they cover and what do they not cover? Sure, Jay, happy to do that. And um, this may seem arcane, but we have seen a lot of changes in social media use. Back in 2011, I started doing research um, for Congressional Research Service with a grant I had on use of social media by members of Congress. And I spent about six years uh, doing that type of research. And I can tell you that it has changed a lot. Paul talked about all the different platforms and we've seen many different uses now. And so uh, as of late, we have asked about the First Amendment, the First Amendment to the Cons Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech 
or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. However, here we are not speaking of the government, right? Um, we are speaking of the private sector. There are certain categories of speech, even if you are talking about uh, the government that are not protected by the First Amendment. And there are precedences that we have seen with the Supreme Court. And typically those deal with uh, disturbing the peace, you know, loudspeakers at night in a residential neighborhood, or that incites imminent unlawful action um, or child pornography. These are the ones that we think of typically. But these tech companies have not violated the Constitution. They have not violated the First Amendment by removing users from their platforms, even the President of the United States, because these are private companies. This is not the government. And the uh, First Amendment to the Constitution protects speech from government censorship. And these are actions of private businesses. So I think that that is something that is very important for people to understand the difference between government actions and the difference here with private companies and the actions that they can take. So Sherry, thanks for clarifying that because, you know, anytime someone who feels that their voice isn't being heard, you know, that we often hear claims of suppression of freedom of speech and such, but it's a, a legal, uh, it's, a, it's the, the first amendment prevents the government from squelching freedom of expression. And even that has exceptions, as you said, for child pornography, disturbance of the peace, things like that. So can you tell us a little bit about section 230? That's been in the news as well. And that's been a partisan issue, although both parties seem to have problems, different problems with section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. So can you inform everybody what that actually is? Absolutely, Jay, and you're correct. Lots of people have problems and different problems with Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Uh, that is a 1996 law, and it states, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. And so what does that mean? That means that this is different than newspapers, right? Social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter, they have protections that newspapers and other publishers uh, do not under the Communications Decency Act. And so that is really important to understand. Uh, the Congressional Research Service, which is an arm of Congress, in fact, look, has looked into this. And in March 27th of 2019, published a report that in fact stated, currently federal law does not offer much recourse for social media users who seek to challenge a social media provider's decision about whether and how to present a user's content. And this is of course, specifically on point to what we're talking about now, where you have Twitter and Facebook removing people from their platforms. And um, that uh, is something that is allowed by this 1996 uh, law that we speak of as Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And so what we've got here is a First Amendment that enables freedom of speech, and then Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act that ensures these social media platforms will not be held accountable 
for the things that are said on their platforms by people participating. And I think there's no question that Section 230 enabled these platforms to scale out to the kinds of numbers Paul shared with us earlier. Without that Section 230, we would not have these global social media platforms in all likelihood. Jay, I think that's, that that is certainly um, a big topic of discussion and one that the social media platforms who were very much, of course, in favor of Section 230 argued and that they would say that the business model did not work without it. And if we did not have Section 230, what would that mean for startups? So putting all this together, you've got these very large platforms that are not violating any laws that have been actually protected by law and allowed to grow. So their incentives have been, haven't their incentives been aligned with letting people say whatever they want at, in return for getting more and more users, which makes them more and more advertising revenue? One of the, one of the challenges that, that I look forward to discussing on this show and our next, that it's important for people to appreciate is, is the point that, that was just made that, that this, this protection resulted in a lot of growth for startups, that in the early stage for small businesses, because we keep referring to the, the, how big these are, but keep in mind, Section 230 applies to everything online. And so one of the challenges we have to, to weigh as we think about this is that there are a lot of small social media platforms. There are a lot of small businesses that have social media platforms. This, this protection applies to them just as much. And, and when we contrast and compare the fact that it applies to the small as well as the large, that, then we have to weigh the fact that the large ones are protected by Section 230. And, and in the United States, we have First Amendment protections. But most of the users on these very large ones aren't in the United States and, and certainly don't necessarily care what our laws and regulations are here. That, that what happens when folks in another country get on these, these platforms, right? Who's, who's, who's responsible for regulation or, or oversight in those cases? These, these are really, really challenging questions that are going to weigh on us for the, for the coming decade, to be sure. When Section 230 came out, it was, it was largely quoted as the most important piece of legal protection in technology. And it's because it enabled... Uh, a lot of small, then small companies, small websites to, to be safe from the liability of having other people saying things on their platform. And I, and I say that it's just liability, not necessarily right or wrong, but you know, if, I, if I put together a website and I open up that website so other people can discuss on it and talk about things on it, I, am, I, am I responsible for what everybody else says? Am I liable for what everybody else says? Those are very important questions when we then have to weigh the implication of free speech, the First Amendment protections, and so forth. People could say things. Who's responsible for what's being said and where? So I, I think I, it's a really good point to bring this up as well, because if you start to look at what sort of content then is rewarded or is promoted, Section 230 like lets anything stand. They have algorithms then that prioritize content that gets more likes or shares or more comments. And the sort of content that actually attracts that sort of attention happens to be content that is polarizing, that uses uncivil language, that undermines other partisans. And I think that these things then work together. You have algorithms promoting this content. You have platforms that are incentivized to increase the amount of time I spend on their page. 
and you have legal protections that allow anything to stand. And it's a little bit of a perfect storm for what sort of content then this, this creates and the democratic consequences of this content. It is. And with those algorithms, they're learning. And we have definitely seen this with YouTube and videos, that the more controversial the videos are, the more they're popping up. So you all have hit on some great points there. These platforms are not prohibited by the First Amendment from allowing certain content on there. And by Section 230, they're not responsible for the individual content that people put on them. In fact, they're incentivized to have more traffic and grow. But Talia and Sherry, you you brought up an, an extra special point there, which is the content that you see is algorithmically prioritized for you. And so it's not just what these the policies are for what can be posted or not, but it's what you're likely to see or not. We all know we don't see most of the content on any of these platforms. So what content do we see and who's responsible for that content? And that's the algorithms of the platforms. Is there any statute or policy about those algorithms and how they prioritize what people see? That is an excellent question. And as far as I know, there's not. We don't have any type of national standards board for AI and algorithms uh, in the United States. Yeah, I really think that might be the, 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 the approach to, to addressing this challenge, that, that one, of, one of the eye-opening perspectives perhaps to have about social media is that human behavior isn't much, much different than it was 20 years ago. You know, 20 years ago, we watched the, the dramatic and, and controversial daytime talk show host creates scandal. And, and we were drawn to, you know, we were drawn to the television shows and the radio shows, Howard Stern, that did the same thing, right? Human nature is drawn to this stuff. What's, what's different, uh, to Sherry's point, what's different is that traditional media does have guidelines with regard to political speech. There has to be balance, for example. Uh, that, that sort of regulation doesn't exist on the internet. That, that what, what, I, what I wrestle with and love to talk about is that on one hand, I support and agree that a, a social media platform should favor what I like to see. That, that creates the experience that I'm drawn to. It's, it's why we're there. On the other hand, there is a reason why there is balance required when it, when it pertains to issues that impact us all, when it pertains to things like government regulation, or, or even just who are the candidates running for the next office, do they, do they each have an equal share of voice on that form of media? The internet changes the way we have to consider putting those regulations in place. And it's just not a discussion that we've had writ large with, with politicians to figure out how to make this work because in, in, in defense of that challenge, uh, not, not many people in Washington know how these things work. It's going to take us some time to, to have the academics, to have the private sector introduce how this stuff works on the internet for them to get familiar with it in order for them to start having those uh, regulatory considerations weighed. As Talia pointed out, they don't get to see the data. And so it's pretty hard for them to see, see specifically what's happening and how, and then be able to, to weigh appropriately on that in favor of both liberty and our rights, as well as making sure we're protected as we need to be. Well, I think there is some data that we have all seen, right, which is that in the Obama administration, uh, only a few percent of his tweets were ever referenced in the news. And I listened to a podcast on this topic earlier today, 
over 60% of Donald Trump's tweets have been referenced in one or more news media later. So we're seeing a huge usage of that platform to generate news there as well. And in fact, the Donald Trump archive of tweets has 56,000 entries in it, which is downloadable by everybody. So we've definitely seen a huge uptick, not just the general growth of these platforms, but a huge uptick in the current administration of the usage of these platforms. In fact, in March, 2016, Donald Trump said he wouldn't be president without Twitter. And he has used Twitter extensively during that. Is this the way we see things going? Do we see uh, these social media platforms as having a huge role in politics and government and in the political climate of our country going forward? So Jay, I want to talk a little bit about controversy because in some ways it's back to the futures with the muckrackers. We have always known that controversy sells, right? And whether it was newspapers or radio or TV, anyone who has been in the public sphere, been in campaigns, been in elected office or policy or just an observer knows that controversy sells. But what we're seeing now is this proliferation, right, of channels, of platforms with um, controversy at an exponential rate of growth, I think. And I would just add that I think that there are two levels at which we can think about social media having an impact in our political sphere. One is at the elite level, which is where you're talking about President Trump tweeting, for example. And here, there's certainly evidence that there'll be a continued influence, whether it'll be the same as President Trump, I, I somewhat doubt. But uh, that you have world leaders, that you have political figures using social media as a way to send signals to each other, to send signals to their constituents. I think that this is here to stay. Uh, and in some cases, that's a really positive thing because now constituents have a way to contact their representatives that lowers the barrier to entry. Uh, a second way that we can think about this is how this has implications for citizens and how citizens interact with the political sphere. And here, I, again, think we're gonna have continued implications, but I think we just need to now in our contemporary environment, ask more critical questions. Are we happy with what has happened with the effect that these social media platforms have had on our political sphere as citizens? And there, I think there's there are uh, positives, but there are also some really significant negatives. And Talia, I think you ask an excellent question because if I go back to 2011, when I was analyzing several months of tweets and posts by members of Congress on their actual congressional Facebook and Twitter accounts and, you know, coding them, there were posts and tweets about, yes, this is how I feel about a certain policy, or I'm going to be in my district, or I'm going to be on TV. But what I have noticed since then is a very different kind of discourse. And I think you, you ask a really important question there. You know, depending on your political perspective, or rather your political perspective aside, uh, Jay, you touched on something too that that I, I, I don't think most people realize, uh, and it and it's that the Obama administration was also pretty well known for uh, their success because of their understanding of social media. Now, obviously, and and this is my point. Obviously, Obama and Trump's approach to social media is drastically different, and I'm not picking a side. We're not we're not here to have that conversation. But is is social media with us pervasively, permanently in politics. Yes, it is. Uh, and and we've, we've seen that not just with the Trump administration, we've seen it previously. What, what was talked about 
10, 10 years ago, 15 years ago in, in, in political circles was, was the fact that this medium is critical now to, to winning an election, uh, that, that Obama re- really rallied people uh, in, in a good way as, as he approached the presidency. Trump took it in a different direction. Uh, and, and, you know, if you, if you take, take yourself out of your opinion of which, which of those perspectives was right, at the end of the day, they both they both largely did the same thing, right? Which is rally people because of this media, because of this medium around their their point of view and perspective. What what that then presses upon us is this 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 appreciation that we have to figure out how to address and deal with the fact that it's not going to go away. And while the next administration may not be as controversial and in, in any regard, uh, the one after that may be. Uh, you know, or or a congressperson uh, maybe just as as outgoing, or 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 your governor uh, may, may figure out that they can create just as much attention uh, by way of this media. One of the reasons it's become so pervasive, thanks to Trump, is almost almost not as much so uh, given his administration or his approach, but it has a lot to do with the fact that traditional media has, has caught on. Traditional press has figured out that. If they pay attention to Facebook, if they pay attention to Twitter, they can they can get those gotcha comments. They can get those gotcha tweets and sensationalize them and get a lot of attention on their own forms of media and their own publisher brands. And so that's not going to go away. The Wall Street Journal and The New York Times and Vox Media and all these other traditional media companies are interwoven with social media as well, Uh, rather than thinking of it as a distinct thing. It's almost more important to, to appreciate or think about how the Internet literally is just social media. If you're on the Internet. Uh, it, part of that, that two-way public discourse, that two-way exchange where you can publish, I can hear you, I can, I can receive that content, and I can reply, that's not going away at all, uh, ever. Uh, and, and, it, what, and it's what it means to be online. Then begging the question, what do we do about it? What do we do about it in politics? How do we teach about it better so that our younger population knows how to deal with that and manage that? And how do we address the fact that it's this global and, and, and really virtual platform? Right. Uh, forget countries. Somebody on the space station circling the globe right now can, can be tweeting. <laughs> you know, at what point are, are those boundaries or those borders uh, almost irrelevant with regard to what it means to be on the Internet? Uh, none of us have the answer to that question, but it's a it's a fascinating uh, time to be alive and to go through the implication of all of this and what it's going to mean to us as 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 a human society. What does it mean to be on the Internet and what is this network effect? It isn't going away. And so what are the repercussions? When you talk about campaigns, yes, Obama figured out the micro-targeting using social media, as did others. And in some ways, having the ability to use social media, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, was a great leveler as far as money in campaigns. You no longer had to have as big of a war chest to buy right? The gross rating points, the, the big media buys, you could produce your own with YouTube. However, as you noted, there are repercussions. It's not going away. How do we deal with this both in politics, uh, with it being interwoven with all of media and with all of our lives, and the network effect? We're going to dive into some of these topics in more detail in part two of this podcast. So as a teaser for our audience, we are going to ask our three experts here, what are their recommendations for next steps for government, for the social media platforms, and for you as listeners and voters to do next? And we'll dive into possibilities and 
things to look out for, things to research, et cetera, in part two of this podcast. But I, I want to close part one with a really simple question for each of our participants. We agree that these platforms have gotten huge in scale, that they've been used for all kinds of content, including political content, that they have contributed at some level to an increasingly partisan view of the world and pushing some viewpoints apart. And there's things that we need to do, but what was your gut reaction when these large private companies enabled certain kinds of content for the longest time. And then after the events at the Capitol last week, disabled the accounts to prevent that kind of content. There wasn't government influence there. They acted quickly, but they acted as private companies that as we can now really clearly see because of that sudden cutoff had a tremendous impact on the amount of information and possibly misinformation that was being shared around the country and globally. What were your initial thoughts about that as, a, as researchers and as policymakers and as entrepreneurs and innovators? Talia, why don't, why don't you start? Yeah, thanks for that. I think I had kind of two reactions. One was a research reaction, which is what was the effect of doing this? Uh, how much does that push people off of particular platforms and seeking new spaces? And is that in fact more democratically consequential if we push people into greater echo chambers uh, that aren't accessible to the public in the same way? So I, I have concerns about that. And then from a, an ethical standpoint, my question was who gets to decide? And we should have a really important societal conversation about that because this is happening. Private companies are doing it. Do we want that? Do we want government to do that? Who should do that if anyone and I, I think that there's just so many important questions raised uh, by what has happened over the past few weeks. Sherry? Yes, deplatforming, as we call it. And there are many questions. Uh, should there be standards? And if so, who determines the standards? And why did this happen? Uh, was it the companies themselves or was it pressure from employees, from um, those who are their advertisers, from others? Uh, these are really things that were going through my mind, as well as what Talia brought up, which is once these folks are deplatformed, is there going to be any transparency, right, as far as what they're doing it and how they're doing it? Uh, these are not easy questions to answer. Paul, what are your my, thoughts? My, my first reaction, my gut reaction is I, that's sort of how you frame the question, Jay. My, my gut reaction was, well, this is what you've all been asking for, is, is the ability, the means to stop some of this stuff that you don't like. And, and that was immediately followed by, is that really what you all want to have happen? That, that we can control the narratives. That, make no mistake, this is, this is an impossible set of questions. That... Uh, you know, right, right now, a lot of folks are happy about what happened. If, if we put it in the context of, of inciting to, to insurrection, that's, that's an extreme case. But just in general, right, do we really want people able to silence either side of a political narrative? Uh, we've been crying for it. We've been clamoring for it. Uh, and, and when the companies finally said, OK, we're going to do it, now, now take a step back and realize the implication. Uh, they can, they can do it to the next person. Uh, is that okay? Uh, 
Um, I'm, I'm actually more, you know, having, having put that perspective around it, I'm actually more in the camp of, of a, a more fundamental human rights kind of perspective. Who, who owns this thing? They, they get to decide. I, I have a social network on my website. Do I not get to decide what's there or not? I, I certainly hope so. <laughs> now, you may, you may not like it. Uh, and, and, in, and in cases where it's clearly criminal, that's a different issue. But as far as communication, as far as things we just don't like, I don't think anybody gets to decide but the person who owns it personally. Uh, and I'm looking forward to, to our next conversation because of that. That's a really important set of conversations and discussions to have. I, 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 like, I like quite simply the house analogy for social media. You're, you're, you're coming into my house and, and yes, you still have free speech because your free speech is protected by the First Amendment from the government. But I can, I can absolutely ask you to stop saying something in my house. I can certainly kick you out of my house if I want to. And, and I like that analogy, though, because, because everyone do appreciate these experiences are actually pretty easy to build. That, that they're not going away, not because Facebook isn't going away. That's not the point that at least I'm not making. That it's really easy to start your own social network. It's really, it's really inexpensive to build these, that there are actually hundreds of thousands of them. And so as we put regulations or constraints in, the, in, in certain circumstances upon some, we can be rest assured that others will emerge, uh, that, that it's really a question for human society, for, for humanity, of what we do about it rather than how we control it, because it's rather hard to, to control a genie that's been let out of the bottle. This is a new reality of the internet, and we're a part of it. And I think this does, in a way, bring us back full circle to where we started earlier in our conversation, which is differences between the government and the private sector. Well, these are some great closing points for part one of this podcast. Thank you all for joining me today. I really look forward to part two, where we'll dive into what are the next steps? What, what do we need to learn? What do we need to research? What actions, if any, do we need to take? What do we need to continue thinking about? What do we need to do to make sure these platforms have the greatest potential good, are not limited in unfair ways, but are also still protecting all of our rights and protecting our society and country? So that's I, I, no answers today, but I'm going to ask you next week for your at least your initial thoughts on that. And I want to encourage the listeners, if you've got questions or things to consider before we record the next podcast, please send us email at info at austinforum.org. And I will share that with our participants for their consideration for part two of this podcast, which we'll record in about a week. So thank you very much for your time today, Talia and Sherry and Paul. And I look forward to talking to you in about a week as we talk about next steps. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Appreciate the conversation. Thanks for listening to the Austin Forum Upload. You can listen to additional episodes and check out a schedule of our monthly in-person events at austinforum.org. The Upload is a production of the Austin Forum on Technology and Society, a nonprofit organization here in Austin, Texas. <laughs>